as we, um, as we come to this particular section, we're looking at Ezekiel's final prophecies in regard to um, what's happening with Jerusalem and why the refugees are struggling with the idea of, of uh, you know, Jerusalem being the, the place where the good people are. And it's, um, it's God explaining the first 25 chapters the Lord is laying out before the nation uh, and for the refugees in the refugee camp that God's going to, there is a future for the nation of Israel and that future is coming through the refugees as they um, raise the next generation. So the generation in the refugee camp, they're, they're not leaving. They're staying there. That's part of God's judgment, part of what God is, is going to be doing there. But as we look at God's hope for the future, chapter 24 is the final prophecy. Final prophecy regarding Jerusalem. He's going to name the date. He's going to tell the refugees. Remember, the refugees can't go home and turn on the news. They can't turn on the news and have the news come up and say, Oh, look, uh, Jerusalem's being invaded right now. They're at, in Babylon. They only imagine what's going on in Jerusalem. And part of their struggle is the idea that God would never allow anything bad to happen to Jerusalem. No matter how wicked God's people are, God will not judge his elect. And they were wrong. Scripture would lay out for us that judgment begins in the house of God. And so the Lord, he lays out the 24 chapters. In chapter 25, we're going to lift up our eyes and look at uh, prophecies concerning the nations and then the hope of the future that God has laid out for them. So we're going to look at the final prophecy of the conquest. It says in Ezekiel 24, verse 1, it lays out, In the ninth year, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, write down the name of this day. This very day the king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem this day. So he says, write down a date. This is the day. And he's going to give them two uh, sign acts to do. You guys remember when Ezekiel's ministry started, God said to Ezekiel, you're not to speak unless I give you something to say. So when Ezekiel would come out of his house, if he was speaking, the people would gather to hear what is it that the Lord has to tell us? What has God got to say? And you may or may not remember the Lord said this, you're going to be mute until Jerusalem falls. And when Jerusalem falls, you're going to go back to speaking like a, a normal person you know it won't be he won't have that that uh, judgment from the lord upon him so we see the date being chosen if you want to write down the date it's january 15th 588 bc we see it also mentioned in second kings 25 second kings would have been written from jerusalem right there they don't have second kings with them uh they're there in the refugee camp second kings 25 says this in the ninth year of his reign the tenth month 
the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his money against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. They built siege works all around it, so the city was besieged until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah on the ninth day of the fourth month, and the famine was so severe in the city, there was no food for the people of the land. So the beginning of chapter 24, the Lord says to Ezekiel, write down this day. Today it has begun. <laughs> now, I think it's around chapter 33 where we see the refugees from the final destruction of Jerusalem arrive where Ezekiel is. And the people there will get word that Jerusalem has fallen. Until that time, all they have is Ezekiel telling them, hey, Jerusalem's going to fall. Jerusalem, though, though that's the place where the tent of the Lord is. That's the place where God's temple is. Ezekiel has given us a prophecy already that the glory of God has left. He's not there anymore. God packed up. His glory went out. His glory has departed from Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is set to fall. We see something similar, similar to that in the New Testament. You remember Jesus when he comes and you have the, uh, the, the people shouting and proclaiming, um, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, right? And they're, <coughs> they're so excited about the things that God is doing and how God is working in Jesus. And so he comes into the temple. And the next thing he does in the temple is cleanse the temple. Right? And what does he say? My father's house is to be a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. And so he cleanses that. He, he cleanses it out. He, he purifies it. And then he's going to be, he's going to be um, basically interviewed by the priests, the scribes, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, until the day Jesus turns to them and says, See to you, your house is left desolate. He doesn't say, my father's house. Because the glory of the Lord hadn't been in the temple all this time until Jesus walked in and the people proclaimed, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then what did the glory of God do? The glory of God in Jesus Christ turned and left and said, this is what? This is your temple. Because they are rejecting him. They have rejected the Lord. And so God's judgment is ultimately going to fall. He's going to do what God had promised that he was going to do. Oh, my goodness. I'm knocking things off all over the place. <clears throat> He's going to do what he had said all along. And so Jesus is going to say to them in Luke chapter 19, right? If you had known, even you, this, your day, the things that make for your peace, yet they are hidden from your eyes. And he says, the day will come now when your enemies will build an embankment all around you. And in 70 AD, what happened? You have Titus Vespasian. And the Roman armies come against what was going on in Jerusalem. And they not only conquered Jerusalem for the last time, ending the nation of Israel in 70 AD. What else did they destroy? The temple. The temple. So their, their prophecies had said, 
hey, there's the, one day the glory of God is going to return. And they're not wrong because in Revelation we read that as well, don't we? There will be a day when an angel will come down to earth, drive a banner into the earth and declare the kingdoms of this earth have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. There, there will be a, a future day. But this all part of God's prophetic plan showing man his wretchedness, his brokenness, showing man his need for what? A savior, because man had what? Rebelled against God, man had been corrupted against God, man had fallen away from God. All of these things we've seen since Genesis chapter 3. And they've repeated themselves in history from generation to generation to generation until Christ. So at that point, man should know we have a need. And our need is... We need a, a savior. We are guilty men. Fallen in sin and God is the answer to that. So this is <coughs> one of the times the Lord is delivering that message to refugees in a refugee camp to tell them, look, you guys aren't coming back to Jerusalem, but your kids are. There's still a future. This is not time for you to quit, but this is time for you to pay attention to the next generation. Prepare that generation to be able to come home. So he gives them the illustration of the, of the boiling pot, verse 3. In verse 3 he says, the Lord speaking to Ezekiel, so utter a parable to the rebellious house. We've heard that phrase before, right? To the rebellious house of Jerusalem and say to them, thus says the Lord God, set on the pot, Set it on, pour in water also, put in the pieces of meat, all the good pieces, the thigh, the shoulder, fill it with choice bones. Take the choicest of the flock, pile logs under it, boil it well, seethe also its bones in it. Therefore, thus says the Lord God. So, so remember, Ezekiel comes out of his hut, and he all, he's, this is what Ezekiel does. He's always doing something. And the people are like, hey, Ezekiel's doing something outside his, his hut again. <clears throat> so the people gather around his, his house, whatever his house was in the refugee camp. And he comes out and he puts a pot, prepares a pot over the fire, puts water in the pot, puts, puts uh, chicken, the choicest of the flock. He, he's, he's making a stew, right, a, a soup. He's preparing the soup. And as he's preparing the soup, the people watching are watching the sign act that he's performing. Okay, he's making a stew. Okay, okay, what, what do you think God wants us to know? And then after he does the sign act, he'll make the proclamation. He'll, he'll speak the words that the Lord had given him. And so these are those words in verse 6. Thus says the Lord God, woe to the bloody city. You remember the Lord had called Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the people would call it the city of peace. But God called it the city of blood. If you go to Jerusalem today, one of the things they'll tell you, and I don't remember the right numbers now. I've been to Jerusalem so many times, I, I should know it, but I don't. <clears throat> but you'll come into the city and they'll say, this Jerusalem, the city of peace, has been destroyed. I don't even know. Huh? 17? I want to say 18, but it might be. 
17, the city of peace, utterly destroyed, demolished 17 times and rebuilt. And when you walk into the gates, you know what's all around the gates, the stone gates? Bullet holes in the city of peace. So we call it Jerusalem, the city of God, but in reality, what is it? It's the bloody city still. Still the bloody city. It's still a symbol of man's rebellion against God, right? What, what do we do in Jerusalem? Jerusalem's divided into quarters. They're chopping up Jerusalem into pieces, and you have the Muslim quarter, and you have the Christian quarter, and you have the Armenian quarter, and you have the Jewish quarter, and all of those guys don't get along. You go to the oldest church in the world. You guys know what the oldest church in the world is? It's the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem. In Bethlehem. You go to the Church of the, of the, go to the Church of the Nativity, and there's a room, a grotto there that was used by Jerome, Jerome, who who uh, translated uh, much of the Bible, especially all was a big part of the Byzantine text family for scripture and so it goes all the way but you know that it's divided i think it's divided into four parts too four different congregations meet in that church you want to talk about confusing there's a bunch of chairs face this way and then there's a bunch of chairs face that way and there's a bunch of chairs face that way and then there's a bunch of chairs face back so that four different services can go on at once because we get along so well. Right? Oh, seems weird, no? The bloody city. The Lord looks at it and he says, Listen, woe to you, bloody city, to the pot whose corrosion is in it. Now the idea is the pot. Now the pot's not the corrosion. The pot's not the corruption. The city is not the corruption. The city bears the scars of corruption. The corruption is the people in the city. So here you have this pot, this big stew that he's making, but listen to what he says about it. Uh, Woe to the city, to the pot, <coughs> whose corrosion is in it, whose corrosion has not gone out of it. Take, take out of it piece after piece without making any choice. For the blood she has shed in her midst, she will put it on the bare rock. And she, uh, she did not pour it out on the ground to cover it with dust. So the idea is her blood was in her. One of the things we read in the beginning in Genesis, when Cain killed Abel. You guys remember? Cain killed Abel. What, what did the Lord say about Abel's blood? His blood is crying out. What, what's the cry of Abel's blood? He's, he's crying out for justice, right? There's A law has been broken. I know a lot of people think God's law doesn't exist until we get to Sinai. Do you, do you think it was okay for Cain to kill his brother Abel? So his blood is crying out for God to, to respond, to respond to it. Here he's saying... Take it out piece by piece, but no, every piece you're taking out and laying out is a piece corroded by the blood that's in Jerusalem. By the, the law-breaking that she has done, the murder she's committed, the, <clears throat> the things that she has done. And she has not sought for there to be 
redemption or a cleansing from the Lord. She's just leaving the blood in the midst. And so the picture of that is the corruption within the pot. Here's what the Lord says about it. He says, this she has done, verse 8, to rouse my wrath, to take vengeance. I have set on the bare rock the blood she has shed that it may not be covered. So the, basically the Lord is saying for all the blood that has been shed for 490 years, all the injustice, all the corruption of that city, for 490 years the Lord is saying I, it's, it's payday today. One of the, one of the things that men, mankind gets confused at is is God gives us his long-suffering, his grace, his mercy, and we did something wrong and lightning didn't come out of the sky. And because God is long-suffering and merciful, man thinks, well, then God doesn't care. It's okay. It doesn't matter. But the Bible tells us when we sin, we store up wrath. When, when the world is in rebellion against God, the world is storing up wrath for the day of the Lord and his vengeance. And so this is what the Lord is talking about. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, <clears throat> woe to the bloody city. I also will make the pile great. Heap on the logs, kindle the fire, boil the meat well, mix in the spices, let the bones be burned up. Then set it, upon, set it empty upon the coals that it may become hot and the copper may burn so that its uncleanness may be melted in it, its corrosion consumed. She has wearied herself with toil. Its abundant corrosion does not go out of it into the fire with its corrosion. On account of your unclean lewdness, because I have cleansed you and you were not cleansed from your uncleanness, you shall not be cleansed anymore till I have satisfied my fury upon you. I am the Lord, I have spoken, it shall come to pass, I will do it, I will not go back, I will not spare, I will not relent, according to your ways and your deeds, you will be judged, declares the Lord God. So the Lord said, look, there was cleansing, there was long-suffering, there was mercy and grace extended, but even in the mercy and grace of God, the people didn't turn from their sin, they continued in that sin. So... The act that Ezekiel does is he takes out that parts of the pot, <clears throat> he lays it out, he makes a proclamation that God has made, and then he cooks it on the fire until the water is gone. And then he cooks it on the fire until the meat is gone, and the bones are charred, and then the pot starts to glow and deteriorate because it's on the fire being cooked. All that assemble of God's wrath being poured out on the city of Jerusalem. And it started that day that Ezekiel is laying that prophecy out before the people. Now, Ezekiel goes on in verse 15. Now the word of the Lord came to me. So Ezekiel's gone back into his home. He's sat back down. He's awaiting the next, the next time the Lord would have him speak. We have no idea how much time has passed. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, behold, I am about to take the delight of your eyes away from you at a stroke. Yet you shall not mourn or weep, nor shall your tears run down. Sigh, 
but not allowed. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind on your turban, put your shoes on your feet. Do not cover your lips, nor eat the bread of men. So I spoke to the people in the morning, and at evening my wife died. So the Lord comes to Ezekiel, and he says, Ezekiel, your wife is going to die. And when she does, I don't want you to mourn before the people. Now, traditionally, in a Middle Eastern culture, there would be much mourning, right? There would be professional mourners who would come. They're, they are very um, demonstrative of, of, their, um, of their feelings, their emotions. Uh, still today, when you go, you can see that. <clears throat> and so the Lord is saying, look, I, I don't want you... I want you to provide another sign act. And the sign act will be built around the death of your wife. Now, we don't know if Ezekiel's wife was dead, uh, sick. And then she, uh, this was the day when she was going to die. If she was well and the Lord, that was just her day um, that the Lord took her home. We don't know anything about that. We just know that Ezekiel said, so I spoke to the people in the morning. The Lord has said, I will take the delight of your eyes, and you shall not mourn or weep. And at the evening, his wife died. There's at least five things that God is laying out for us that we don't want to miss. First one is this. He tells him to sigh. He does not say, Ezekiel, you can't cry. But you cannot cry out like they would culturally. Don't go out in the streets and wail. I don't want the people to see. I want the people not to, not to see your more. I want them to ask you, what are you doing? Because it would be so different. <clears throat> so he says you can do that, but he doesn't want them to enter into the ritual lamentations that were regularly a part of funeral occasions just like we saw in mark 538 we saw when when jesus went to raise lazarus same thing and so he says you you can sigh but not allowed second thing <coughs> he tells him bind on your turban under mourning the turban the normal headdress of the priest um, would be set aside and upon your head would go dust and ashes. You guys remember the book of Job, right? And after his family all dies, what does he do? He goes out into a pot, pile of broken pottery and he, he goes out in sackcloth and ashes. So here, <clears throat> the Lord says, don't do that. Normally, culturally, they'd go outside, they'd put ash on their head, and that would be a part of what was normal a normal funeral for them, but he's not to do that. The third thing, keep your shoes on your feet. Put shoes on your feet. Normally the sandals are taken off in a time of distress. Take off your sandals. Uh, symbolically, to show that there's nothing between you and the Lord. Like, for example, when Moses is at the burning bush and the Lord says, take your sandals off, you're on holy ground. It's so that there's nothing between you and me. And, and symbolically, they would practice that during funerals. The Lord says, don't do that. 
keep your shoes on, keep your headdress on. Remember, Ezekiel was a priest. Keep your headdress on. You can sigh, you can, you can weep, you can sorrow, but not like you normally would before the people. The fourth thing he says, <clears throat> cover your lips. Now this was compulsory for a leper, and it's a sign of disgrace to cover, to cover your lips or your face. The idea ultimately is covering the lower part of your beard or over your mouth. Um, it regularly um, represented a time of extreme sorrow. In, uh, in and among the Hebrew people. The fifth thing he says, don't eat the bread of men. What he might say today for us is, I don't want you to have a funeral meal. Like when we have a funeral and you get funeral potatoes. Or something that is common that you would share together as a meal. The Lord's saying, no, no funeral meal, no no bread for the mourners. Nothing like normal. No normal mourning or sorrow during this time. I, I want you to do that. And it was specifically the command of God. Yes, Ezekiel, I know she's your delight. But the Lord is going to use every aspect of Ezekiel's life to carry the word of God to the people. He still does that today. He still uses everything in our lives, every pain or sorrow. The Lord God will utilize those things to bring his word, a better understanding of who God is through it. And here's the reason. Why is he doing this? Look at verse 19. So the people said to me, so he's like, okay, the people are like, what's going on, dude? When's the funeral? You're not planning things. You're, you're not acting like, you know, normal. What's going on? What, why are you doing this? So the people said to me, will you not tell us what these things mean for us? You are acting this way. So the people know, right? Because Ezekiel was a prophet of the sign act. He had, he's, he's acted out many things over the first 24 chapters, Right? He's act, and so they look and they say, his wife's dead and he's acting different. This is prophetic. There's something in this God is trying to tell us, something that God wants us to see. So when they ask the question, why are you acting like this? Then I said to them, the word of the Lord has come to me. Say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, <coughs> I will profane my sanctuary the pride of your power, the delight of your eyes, the yearning of your soul, your sons and your daughters whom you left behind shall fall by the sword and, and you shall do as I have done. Now here's why. They're not watching it on the news. They're not going to see it on Facebook. In chapter 33, or, or whichever chapter in the 30s, where we see the refugees come in, it has already been over for quite a while. All the deaths will have already happened. All the destruction will have already been over. And the refugees will not have mourned. Because they're not going to know. And the Lord is telling them, 
This is the point. This is the point that this, this is the, my sanctuary is coming down. And all the people you thought to yourself when they took you as slaves, you said, well, at least my nephew is going to be okay because he didn't have to come in, in the refugee train. He's still in Jerusalem. And we know Jerusalem's where, where all the blessed people are. And, and the Lord is saying, all those people you thought were going to be okay, they're not okay. All those things you thought was going to work out a certain way or a particular way, and you were like, oh, no, because, because this could never happen. Because, don't keep in mind, those people were not in Jerusalem praying, God, save us. What were they doing? They're, they're on the phone trying to call Egypt. They're trying to find help everywhere but God. Remember Jeremiah walking through the streets, calling the people to repent, to surrender, to go over to the Babylonians and live and not die? So the people were not left without the voice of God in their midst, but they were a rebellious house, remember? And they were a bloody city. And they would not repent. If you read the book of Revelation, you will read that phrase over and over again. This judgment falls upon the earth. And what will the Lord say? And still they would not repent. And this judgment fell upon the earth. And still they would not repent. Jesus told us why. He said, because men love the darkness rather than the light. His light is shining, but men love their sin. In fact, you want to offend someone? Tell them something that they're doing in their life is sinful. And first thing they're going to say to you is, hey, judge not. But it's saying judging, I'm just telling you, God's word says that's not okay. This is sin. You know, this nation is utterly so sinful. If you think God does not call us the bloody city or the rebellious people, you're crazy. And the problem is that rebellion and that desire for violence or whatever that made it a bloody city, that's in the church too. We're, we, we so much want to make friends with everything in the world that we're happy to open up our doors and invite everything about the world to come in. And then don't say nothing to them because you're going to offend them. Well, they're living together. They're not married. Well, don't, don't say anything. We, we want to wait and see if they'll decide to choose Christ. Okay. Maybe. But the experience in Scripture says they choose what? The darkness, not the light. And what is it that Paul said about children of the light? What do we do? We don't approve of the works of darkness. We expose them. Right? Isn't that what he said? Just by being light. Just by understanding, hey, this is what the word of God teaches. 
that the book of Revelation is outpouring of the wrath of God. Those days will come. I don't know if they're coming now or they're still coming yet future. But it's not helpful for the church to pretend everything is okay. It's not helping. It's not making it better. It's, it's not even helping us. Right? Where we find ourselves dealing with our own uh, sin and struggle. And so we want to understand that the Lord is laying out, look, man, this is all going to fall. It's all going to come down. It's all going to burn. And when it does, it will be a righteous judgment. It won't be because we didn't deserve it. It will be because we did deserve it. God's judgments are always righteous and true. So Ezekiel Ezekiel is going to lay out for them the purpose in verse 24. So thus shall Ezekiel be assigned. This is what the Lord is saying to that to the refugees. Ezekiel will be assigned. According to all he has done, you shall do. When this comes, and you know that I am the Lord God. When this comes, then you will know. I'm the Lord. When, when mankind stands before God in judgment, no one's going to have a question of his existence. Are they? Lord, I don't think you exist. No, they're not going to do that. When they stand before the Lord God, great white throne judgment, there's no atheists that day. What will everyone know? You are the Lord God. That's why the Lord says over and over again when his judgment comes, and then you will know that I am the Lord. But don't lose sight, please, of 490 years of grace and mercy first. 490 years of prophets calling them to repentance. 490 years, some good kings, some godly men calling them to revivals. But when, when the earth rebels against God, there will be a day when it will get all finished up. He says in verse 25, As for you, son of man, surely on the day when I take from them their stronghold, their joy and glory, the delight of their eyes, their soul's desire, their sons and their daughters on that day, a fugitive will come to you to report to you the news. On that day, your mouth will be opened. So Ezekiel will be able to talk. He will no longer be mute unless the Lord gives him something to say. On that day, your mouth will be opened and you shall speak and no longer be mute. So you will be assigned. You'll be assigned to them. When all that happens, they will know Jerusalem will have fallen. And even in the falling of Jerusalem, listen to what he says, they will know what? I am the Lord. They will know on that day when God's judgment comes, they will know 
Because it's not because there was no grace. It's not because there was no mercy. It's not because God wasn't long-suffering. The script, that's why the Old Testament declares over and over again. Why was Jonah mad at God? He said, God, I knew you would forgive them. If they did what? Repented. But if man does not repent, what's the lesson? The lesson is the same as what Jesus declared in the Gospels. The Lord God commands all men everywhere that they repent and believe. Repent and believe. For he is a God who will pardon. Right? He pardons iniquity. He's forgiven my sin. Has he forgiven yours? So we, we know that that is what he does. Then what is our place? If we know these things, if we know that God's judgment will come, if we know that we are living in a wicked and adulterous generation, what's our place? Our place. Ezekiel told us in, in chapter 3, didn't he? You are a watcher on the wall. Sound the warning. Declare to the people, nah, I'm not telling you to be rude, mean, obnoxious, but I am saying don't be silent. Don't be silent. Use your influence, your words, by the power of God's spirit to share the truth in love. And call men to repentance. And if man rejects you, it's okay. He hasn't rejected you. Who has he rejected? He's rejected God. So what did the Lord say? Shake off the dust and go to the next town. But don't stop. Don't give up. There are still people who will respond, right? There are still people who will be a part of the work that God's doing. Amen? Why don't you pray with me? Let's go before the Lord. Father God, we thank you for uh, this time we can come to you, God. We can open our, our hearts to you, Lord. We can wait to see, Lord, you move in the, in the time of the living. God, we want to see you do incredible things, Lord. We want to see you move in our midst, Lord God. We want to recognize that you are able to do abundantly above all we can ask or imagine. God, that you want your people to call out to you, to open our, our hearts to you. Lord, when in this, this last week when I was struggling in bitterness and you, you bid me to lay my bitterness down, to, to be set free from the burden of that. And you, God, were faithful to do so. You are calling us to recognize where our help comes from. It's not our righteousness that is going to save us it's not our blessings that are going to accomplish that you are looking for your people the people who are called by your name to lift up their eyes to you and cry out to you 
to cry out for you to give us strength, to cry out for you to forgive our failures, to cry out to you so that our hearts can be made right with you. And then, Lord, you're asking us to say, I'm, I'm here, Lord, for you. I will wait. I'm waiting for you, Lord. Drive me, move me, equip me, control me, so that I, with my Savior, can say, I only do the things God gives me to do. I only say the things God gives me to say. May we respond. May we, <coughs> may we reach out, God, to allow you to move and work in and on us, Lord. And may you be glorified as we place our hope in you. Nothing else will do. There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. May we put our hope in you, in Jesus' name.